weekday mornings from 10 till 12. This is KCLR Live. Good morning. You're very, very welcome along KCLR Live. Unini Valdownig with you again this morning. I don't think many news stories can stop us all in our tracks the way that the very sad death of Sinead O'Connor has done. We'll be talking about Sinead right after the news with Ashling. Stunning voice of Sinead O'Connor there, joined on the line now by Niall Stokes, founder and editor of Hot Press magazine, and in studio by John Masterson, who has worked with Sinead. I'll start with you, Niall. I I really don't know how you could put into words the massive impact Sinead has had on us, not just musically, but maybe we'll start with that. What do you think her musical legacy is going to be? Um, It's very hard to put that into anything less than uh, 50,000 words. (laughs) <laughs> but Sinead was uh, she broke the mould really and especially for Irish women um, you know Ireland had been a place where women were great interpreters of songs and they sang you know the folk tradition was very strong here the great singers like Mary Black and Moeny Vrenon from Clannad and uh, Maura O'Connell and so on but there were very few Irish women writing their own songs and singing their own songs and producing their own records. And Sinead emerged as a really uh, bright, sparkling new talent uh, at a very young age. I mean, she put an ad in Hot Press uh, looking for a band to join at the age of 15. And we were from then, she was in there at the office. uh, And it was really uh, a very um, you know a big moment for us when she was uh, signed by Ensign Records um, she, I saw her met her first uh, singing with the Waterboys in the Olympic Ballroom in Dublin she did a guest slot there and she was absolutely stunning brilliant and of course she didn't just sing brilliantly she was also really striking looking very beautiful wonderful eyes and a great smile um, and so she made an, an impression on everyone straight away. And uh, so when she came around to, to, to making The Lion and the Cobra, uh, she really had that kind of in sense of her own uh, in, independent voice. And she wanted to make great records. And she was a musician. So she wasn't just a singer. She was somebody who understood the whole dynamic of music. So she co-produced uh, that first album, and it is it is a great album. I mean, a song like Mandinka with the Banshee Whale. I mean, that was a that was that was a new phenomenon which Schneid, look, looking at punk and taking things on the stage further. Uh, she she invented this new approach to singing for Irish women um, and of course Dolores O'Riordan was very influenced by that and really we can say that every single Irish female uh, performer since has had the legacy of Sinead's great independence and spirit and, 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 and belief in the importance of 
being true to yourself as an artist uh, to look at and to be inspired by. She absolutely was true to herself, Niall, wasn't she? And I think she described herself as being a poet, but just happened to be as well incredibly musically talented and, of course, was was a very striking woman as well. Is there a standout song or a standout album for you? You mentioned how young she was when her first album came out, but she had been peddling away. What stands out for you across the decades of her brilliance? Well, I think um, <clears throat> there's no question but that um, the 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 uh, great single that everyone uh, knows her best by, Nothing Compares to You, was an, an extraordinary moment. It was one of those m- magical things that happens in the popular music cultural space every now and then, where the video for the song amplifies it in an extraordinary way and when you think about that video it is a very simple video it's a camera held essentially on Sinead's face for the bulk of the song Uh, and you see in the changing expressions on her face the emotions uh, that are uh, being conveyed in the song and then there's that extraordinary moment when she mentions her mama um, and of course it's a Prince song but the, the reference to a mother in it uh, inspires the first tear to run down her cheek uh, and then you see a second tear on the other cheek and it is an utterly iconic uh, video and you know it, 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 it is an absolutely extraordinary moment uh, and it, it, I mean I, I would make a comparison with where Hosier take me to church where the video connect with the music in an extraordinary way and turn that into an enormous global uh, sensation and the same happened with with uh, nothing compares to you and you know the album the album is a great uh, album but of course Sinead continued to make great records to sing absolutely brilliant I mean you paid a little bit of you made me the thief of your heart there and that's a great song where she she was working with Gavin Friday uh, on that um and it was for uh, Jim Sheridan's film in the name of the father and you know it's a, it's just a measure of Sinead. she 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 made great contributions to uh, albums by the chieftains and she collaborated with loads of people very successfully people always wanted Sinead to be involved because she brought something completely unique to her performances and uh, she was really an, a, a fantastic singer and she had a beautiful voice but also she entered the song she owned the song she was so much uh, more I'm going to bring John Masterson in now if that's okay because John we were talking earlier and you mentioned that many people in that business they go into autopilot she didn't and what I think was she wasn't able to well I was fortunate hello Niall I was fortunate enough to bump into her a good number of times particularly when I was doing the Late Late and, uh, and after when I was in R- RT doing some, some things with her to, to be you know up close to her when she was singing um, anything be it Nothing Compares to You or a variety of other songs she was absolutely extraordinary the sound and just to to look at her but an awful lot of people when you meet sort of star artists and she, Sinead wasn't a star Sinead was a super super superstar. she was a worldwide one of the most recognisable people on the planet, I would say, say at times. She had a great ability to move uh, out of automatic pilot. And I can remember a few times having lovely conversations with her that that sprang out of nowhere where you realised you were having a con- conversation. One was around the time of Universal Mother. 
and she had recorded Scorn Not uh, His Simplicity and uh, a Phil Coulter song and she worked with Phil quite often Phil was very involved in her early records he plays piano on some, on, on, on some of them and it, it was lovely to be able to just have a chat about the song and then she would talk about various words and why she thought about them in, in various ways but you realised you weren't talking to a superstar you were just having a chat over a cup of tea or, 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 or whatever it was and I, I think fame sat on easily to be as famous as as she was. I remember many years later um, with John Dunford, who was Sharon Shannon's manager. John and I did a number of projects together, and we were doing stuff with Glenstall uh, Abbey and with that the, the monks. And Sinead rang John one day, and she expressed an interest. She had heard about it somewhere, and John said, "Come on down to Glenstall." So we went down to to Glenstall, and it was it was illustrative to see the kind of burden of fame because we were having a discussion about what we would do, and there was a, there was a variety of people there. But as soon as Sinead opened her mouth, there was silence, and everyone turned to her, you know. And 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 what she was trying to do was probably have a collaborative conversation. Now that project came came to, came to nothing, but her interest was in the music. Was there something she could contribute? She wasn't being the star. She was being, I'm a musician. If there's something I can do here that'll work with you guys, let's do it. I remember Imelda May telling an incredible story about a difficult moment in her life and she was performing with Sinead and Sinead just straight away saw it with no words whatsoever. She was so empathetic. Do you have any stories about her, Niall, that, that our listeners would be interested in this morning, about her, the person as opposed to the musician or the or the activist? Well, she, she, she would... I mean, Sinead could have uh, had a load of advisors and PR people uh, who would manage her affairs and relationship with the media and so on. Um, but of course, she wasn't the remotest bit interested in that. So Sinead would make the phone call herself, ring through, be Sinead O'Connor's on the line there or whatever, and um, she would get whatever was on her mind, off her mind, and or talk about whatever was, uh, you know, uh, she, she, she was uh, up, upset by or you know, how she was getting on or whatever. But she used to ring me at home here and uh, my son, who was eight at the time, Rowan, used to pick up the phone a lot. Um, and she got to know Rowan, and uh, about the fifth call in, she said to him, do you like jokes? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and she proceeded to tell him a joke about uh, polar bears. And uh, I won't repeat it here because it ends in expletives. <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm sure that was delightful for eight-year-old. <laughs> she, made, she didn't. She, she didn't have any of the inhibitions. No, she didn't. That other people burdened themselves with. Um, she, she, she was. I mean, I, I loved her use of expletives. She was brilliant. Uh, you know, just in terms of the freedom of expression that she had, uh, and of course, she was extremely funny. Um, you know, she she was very witty and and and. Uh, she just loved loved the crack. She loved mischief. Um, but I, 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 a highlight for me in terms of my relationship with Sinead and my, my memories of Sinead uh, was from a night of the Hot Press Awards. And uh, we had decided to uh, see if we could get Nina Simone to Dublin to present her 
with a Lifetime Achievement Award, which Lena Simone was a fantastically uh, brilliant and uh, influential uh, singer, a woman of extraordinary integrity. And uh, we, we, we thought, OK, we've got to get somebody who uh, is of sufficient stature to present uh, Nina Simone with the award. And so I called Sinead and she immediately said, yeah, absolutely love it. I, I adore Nina Simone. She's brilliant. Um, so it was one of those singular moments to be on stage with Sinead uh, when Nina Simone was called to the stage and Sinead presented her with the award. It was absolutely a beautiful moment and I was uh, you know, just to be up there on the stage with those two wonderful, iconic, marvellously influential women uh, was was amazing. I'm sure it was. I feel it's lovely and it's really important to remember that, Sinead, this morning. But I suppose we can't but mention that moment that we've talked about a lot over the years when she tore up the picture of the Pope. Something that I thought was interesting was that she said, people say that tearing up that picture somehow derailed my career. I feel the opposite of that. In fact, having a number one record derailed my career. Would either of you like to comment on that? I, I, I suppose I, I, I felt at the time, first of all, there was a, there was a, a sort of a reference involved um, where Bob Geldof had torn up the picture uh, of Olivia Newton, uh, John and John Travolta on top of the Pops a few years earlier when Rat Trap went to number one, the first Irish rock single to go to number one in the UK. So Sinead was showing her awareness of the history of Irish music when she did that. But of course, when she tore the, the picture of the Pope and she, the, the words she said at the time were fight the real enemy, um, she was addressing something which uh, was you know, hugely important in terms of women's position in society in Ireland. I mean, don't forget that was the decade in which names like Anne Lovett, Eileen Flynn and Joanne Hayes were etched forever into the bruised psyches of a generation. And, and, and Sinead had come through that, had lived through that, and she knew that the uh, marriage of church and state in Ireland had been uh, a desperately damaging uh, a facet in the development of this country. And she made that statement at the time and I think that she's what she said was important. I mean, it is true that there was a terrible reaction to that in the States. She was vilified. Um, it, brought, it, 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 it certainly didn't uh, help her career, in inverted commas, if that was, what of int- was, was, was of interest. But of course, that wasn't really what Sinead was about. She didn't care about the commercial aspect of things. It was much more important to her to try and be herself and express herself honestly and openly any time she could. And of course, you know, you, you can't get away from the fact that she dealt with mental health issues. She was very open about that. She had, a, 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 you know, a, a, she had a very difficult time dealing with, uh, you know, aspects of life that other people negotiate uh, without the same level of trauma, um, you know, and, and, and that's just the fact that she, she found certain aspects of everyday life really tough. But she was a phenomenal artist and a brilliant singer. And uh, she made a huge uh, impact 
on Ireland and the Irish society. I mean, John mentioned, you know, how well known she was uh, globally. She was probably the best known Irish woman in history. Um, wow. And, you know, it's extraordinary to be able to say that about the girl that we knew at the age of 15 coming into the press office and putting her ad in, uh, looking for a, a, a band to join. Mm. If she had torn up the picture on the Late Late Show, it would have been a one-week fuss. But she did it in the most conservative country in the English-speaking world, probably, and, and it, it, it had, had an enormous impact. But I'm also thinking, and, and, and Niall will, will know, know well John Reynolds, because John and Sinead um, and... Um, their, their son Jake, but J- John worked with Sinead so much in the beginning, and and I think uh, co-produced her. They co- co-wrote things, and around about 1997, 98, um, I did a TV series where we took the point for five nights, and we uh, it was for. RTE and for PBS in America and we started it off with Sinead and the song that we used and it was she and John had had chosen us was Thank You For Hearing Me and when I listened to it this morning because it's a live version of it and she just does the first line Thank You For Hearing Me and the audience erupts into not into that kind of appreciative um, uh, applause and uh, I remember uh, going out to a studio out in the north side with John afterwards because they had decided that was the track they wanted to put on the uh, on the album and him being an absolute pleasure to work with. But he was a, a mu- musical and personal rock of support for her and, and it, it must be a, a devastating day for him. But I listened to it this morning. Oh, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me and for not leaving me. And it, it's again... I've I've heard Sinead in many interviews talk about um, songs being an autobiography and she says if people say they're not singing about themselves they're just telling you lies and practically every song you listen to now you hear in a in in a new in in a new way again but the the apart from the wonderful artist uh, I had a good friend who used to come over from England every now and again who had been grown up in Dublin been around Dublin worked in RTE and whenever he was uh, in Dublin, he'd do the usual thing. He'd catch up with all his own mates. And I remember coming into my kitchen one night, and there was Sinead having a cup of tea at the, <laughs> uh, at the table. And she was just Sinead. And I'm so glad that I had a little glimpse uh, into her as a person, never at the level of knowing her, her troubles and demons. I, 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 it wouldn't have been that type of relationship. But also to see up close the just extraordinary talent she was. And I mean, uh, Niall, I hadn't thought of it that way. She probably is the most famous Irish person ever. Yeah. It's quite the yeah, same. John, well, you mentioned Thank You For Hearing Me, and I had it was a song I had noted down here, you know, as one people people tend to think in some way that she achieved her you know greatest moments as an artist um in those first couple of albums but songs like thank you for hearing me and no man's woman you know they're absolutely extraordinary songs and thank you for hearing me is a particularly beautiful brilliant song um so it's important to say that she she continued to write great songs she continued to sing like in the most extraordinary way um, and she was a master of the craft I mean it wasn't just that she could stand up in a room and sing she knew how to use a microphone she had that sort of fantastic technique of moving the mic away when she got louder and 
you know, managing uh, the relationship with the microphone, and then of course the the audience experience of that as a way into she 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 owned the song. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you should say that. uh, I was I was chatting with Una before we came on, and I was saying I have never ever seen anyone use a microphone the way she did. It was her voice was one instrument, but 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 the microphone was kind of the, the two of them were were juxtaposed together and it would it would come close and go in she was moving it all the time and mm. uh, and obviously hearing in her ears her her her, her own, own voice but in any of the times i i saw her saw her sing she never ever she didn't have the ability to go through the motions she 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 just lived each and every one of those songs um and of course i remember i mean gay was terribly terribly fond of her and um, I can remember various times going for m- maybe going for a walk with Gay or uh, or have, having a, a cup of coffee, and there was something in the papers about Sinead, and he had this great, I suppose I'd call it an avuncular attitude to her, and he'd look and say, "Is there anything we could do to help that lovely girl?" You know, and I mean, obviously, he it never went any any further than that, and, and he didn't. But she had that effect on people, and anyone who knew her up close, I mean, you looked into those eyes, and I mean. Half the men in the world fell in love with her, and the other half just just listened. But she she was, uh, and, a, and she's such a tiny little woman. I mean, when you stood beside her, you sort of felt, you know, if you if, if you puffed, you you you'd, you'd blow over. But so much, and a, a, lo, a local thing. She went to school in Newtown here for a while um, when she was a teenager down down in Waterford. Uh, I think probably for for a year or so, and and, and I think that probably was where some of her personality may may have may have formed but they're such a talented family i remember being her her being in and her older sister emer coming in who's who's a terrific artist and uh and and her dad who who also w- was around it's a t- it, it's terribly sad. It's very very sad. Niall and John, thank you so much for coming in this morning and remembering the beautiful, the iconic Sinead O'Connor. President Higgins described her as having had an unmatched talent. I think we'd all agree with that. She was vulnerable. She was powerful. She was pure. And I'm not sure any song embodies all of those things that she was as well as this one. sunny day Somewhere in London in the middle of nowhere Didn't have nothing to do that day Didn't want to do nothing anyway Carlo Kilkenny KCLR Welcome back to KCLR Live 083 306 9696 for your text. We had a lovely one in from Sean O'Hargon, who coincidentally will be in on other business with us tomorrow morning. But he says, what an incredibly sad morning. Sinead O'Connor truly was the voice of our generation in changing Ireland. She was passionate, truthful to herself and brave beyond meaning. He also mentions that she was let down and that it's very sad to think that both she and Dolores Reardon are both gone so soon. Her gig in Killin Hill in 2019 was a privilege to be at and I'm sure many people would share that view. Now, Minister Stephen Donnelly has been very busy making announcements and amongst them the establishment of a task force which could soon see pharmacists prescribing medicines. I'm joined in studio by Joe Hare of Kissan's Pharmacy to discuss this announcement. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Una. 
Thanks for coming in to us today. And thanks for the you're invite. You're very welcome. So first off, is this good news? This is great news. It's very good news for patients. It's been uh, talked about for a long time. Um, it probably goes back even to the announcement of Slanchy Care back in uh, 2018, um, which was, as you know, to give high quality, affordable care to people when and where they need it. Um, largely meaning in the community in primary care as opposed to you know outpatient secondary care hospital services uh, where it's not needed um, so you know and also you might you might have heard back some months ago this was announced by the NHS in the UK as well and it's been going in Scotland since I think 2020 uh, where pharmacists are prescribing now in, in a lot of uh, conditions you know urinary tract infections uh, in Patigo you know, in, in, in infected skin bites, um, hay fever, acne. So, you know, th- this will give patients much more timely access to uh, affordable healthcare in pharmacy. Um, you know, so it's a really good announcement for for patients. Really and I'm good. sure it's frustrating for you as a pharmacist, as it is for patients on mm. the other side of the counter sometimes, that you're not in a position to prescribe those things. I don't know how it worked in Scotland, but how do you think they will work out the limitations of the empowering that they're going to to give to pharmacists? I oh, look, they'll 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 come up with. I mean, there's an expert group, um, you know, very eminent ex- expert group chaired by Dr. Pat Homani, who's a former chair of a C former CEO of the Health Products Re- Regulatory Authority, the PSI, the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland, are represented on it. The HSE are represented on it. The Irish College of General Practitioners are re- represented on it. And then you'll have academia as well on it. So there'll be a lot of. Um, you know, a lot of really important uh, stakeholder inputs into the into the task force, which I'm sure will come up with a lot of um, safe protocols, and um, to make sure that that the, these services, when they when they are rolled out, will be effective, safe, and very accessible. That's the main thing. I mean, our, the biggest issue we have, one of the biggest issues we have in our health service is access, um, and this this will free up. Uh, I think the IPO have estimated a million GP appointments. It'll, it'll reduce unnecessary uh, appointments by about one million per year um, I, I would imagine it's actually probably higher than that but that's what the IPO have estimated um, you, you know so you know, pharmacists actually have been prescribing all along really it's not called prescribing it's not documented as a prescription you know but, but patients present with and have been for always presented with symptoms in pharmacy and have products recommended for them and those the, the amount of products that we recommend that used to be on prescription has expanded hugely since I first came into pharmacy, you know, nearly 30 years ago. Uh, so we have highly effective formerly prescription-only medicines available for us to treat, you know, multitudes of common ailments, you know, um, indigestion, mild to moderate pain, uh, hay fever, as I said, you know, products like, you know, some of those very common antihistamines, which people be familiar with from this time of the year for hay fever, cetirizine, uh, nasal steroids, uh, fluticasone, all those products uh, years ago were prescription only medicines. Uh, and pharmacists have been prescribing in inverted commas those to patients presenting with, with hay fever symptoms first. For some time. Uh, it's just not been called prescribing uh, oh. because it's not documented in the way we understand prescribing to be. But now I think in the future what will happen is that pharmacists will be able to prescribe those for patients, for example, who have a medical card. Uh, at the moment, if patients ha- um, present with severe hay fever symptoms, um, they either have to, well, they have to buy the products if they have, if they have a medical card or else they have to make a GP appointment and see a GP. Um, so the idea being that that shouldn't be necessary. 
and that's is taking up GP time and we have the products available to us they're off prescription for, for as I said for several years in that instance just hay fever is a good example because it's topical at the mm-hmm. moment um, so, there, so you know these these are this will really improve access for patients. Okay, and it really seems to make sense from what you're saying. GP demand is far outstripped by the capacity, so it's going to come a long way towards solving that problem. But I was reading this morning, Joe, um, I can't remember exactly the name of the the piece of work, but it was a body of work where pharmacists were surveyed. And what came out of that quite strongly was that pharmacists seemed to feel under quite a lot of pressure and not in a position to give as much health advice as being sought. Would you have concerns that this power that you're about to have, if if we're to be believed by uh, Minister Donnelly's announcement, that that's going to put even further pressure on you and maybe push the pressure elsewhere? Well, yeah, there's a lot of pressures on community pharmacy and pharmacy, I think, is, is it today's meeting to stir about funding? I mean, pharmacy hasn't had a fee increase since 2009. So our income is, we're grossly underfunded at the moment. Um, and now look at general practice had that problem for years and they, they recently got a new pharmacy, con- a new uh, general practice contract, which I think has improved the funding in general practice. But pharmacy needs a, a similar investment. Um so, but yeah, you're talk- what you're probably talking about is like, you know, and I, I'm very, very keen on this in my own pharmacies that, that patients actually have access to the pharmacist. Now, uh, you know, we in Ireland, uh, we have so much bureaucracy in, in what, what we do every single day that actually limits the amount of access pharmacists have. Uh, we need huge change in, in pharmacy regulation, which will uh, free up time for pharmacists. And we need less... Um, Less, if you like, um, over 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 um, interference with with from a from a bureaucracy point of view. Uh, some of the paperwork we have to do is just ridiculous. Um, you know, so so there's a lot of things that could be done to free up pharmacists' time to be out with patients, um, and that's really really important because if we're going to be providing more services. Um, Two patients, um, and you know, we introduced our own in our own pharmacy group. We introduced a whole new, low, a whole uh, series of new screening services over the last six months, and you know, for, it, it is quite difficult to free up pharmacists' time to provide those services. You know, uh, uh, blood pressure checks, uh, cholesterol checks, uh, urinalysis for uh, for patients presenting with urinary tract infection symptoms. You know, th- those type of things take time, and we need pharmacists to be. Uh, have the time to do those things so we need to look at the role the, the full role and how we can free up pharmacists to be more available to patients so pharmacists are going to be out um, prescribing for patients uh, formally prescribing for patients as will will uh, follow from this uh, task force and that's the, the time we're going to have to find the time for that but and, and the funding because as I said pharmacy is, is very underfunded at the moment Do you think this task force will be looking at those things Reducing should, the paper the time elsewhere. Like, I mean, our, our regulator is there. Like, so there was a lot of changes made during COVID. Um, you know, extending the life of prescriptions from six months to nine months. Um, but there was a lot of other changes during COVID as well, which now need a whole lot of other legislative change. Um, for example, uh, electronic transfer of prescriptions uh, by health mail to pharmacies. Um, so at the moment, there's, there's a lot of bureaucracy around that that could be eased. Um, a lot of paperwork um, that's that's unnecessary. Um, okay. And just it's just a lot of our our, our medicines regulations are out of date now, basically. Okay. Um, 
Well, listen, hopefully that will be tackled and mm. this move by Minister Donnelly will become part of that a solution to that overall problem with access to healthcare. Joe, appreciate you coming in this morning to share your thoughts with us. Thanks, Una, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Bye. KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. Welcome back to KCLR Live. I'm joined in the studio now by Parish Priest of Clara, Father Willie Purcell. Good morning, Father Good morning, Willie. Una. Thank you for having me in. You're very welcome. I suppose we have to mention Sinead O'Connor. She was, she was a big critic of the Catholic Church and yeah. I, I guess just a little bit of your reaction to her very sad passing. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it's very sad for Sinead and I think the, the many millions of people throughout the world who are remembering her yesterday and today are connecting in uh, you know, with a woman whose vulnerability, I think, and whose brokenness resonates with all of us. Uh, you know, uh, the two things I would say about Sinead from my own, kind of just seeing her and listening to her, is the first thing is that as a performer, she was superb. She's one of the few uh, soloists that I can actually know who, when singing a cappella, could hold perfect pitch and tonality. I mean, unbelievable. Um, this morning I was listening to her, you know, some, some a cappella pieces, and she was the only really performer uh, of the few who could actually hold that. Her, her kind of, her, I suppose, her disagreement with the church, and we know that she was ordained a priest and then she became a Muslim. And, you know, all of this, I think, personifies in Sinead a desire for people to get deeper into her to realize who she was. And I think her music kind of personified this. I mean, all her songs, again, as I said, when, when we all hear her songs, it's almost like it's our song uh, that, that we are performing. Because, again, uh, you know, every part of her life and every aspect of her life and every experience of her life, and even in relation to, to her kind of her, her rouse with Catholic Church or her rouse with politicians or her rouse with the world, with humanity and the world, were very much, I suppose, you know, indicative of Sinead trying to find herself and hoping that people would recognise her for who she truly, truly was. And I think I, the de- I, 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 mm. I do think it was more than that, Father Willie. And I, it's mm-hmm. been well, well reported and sure. documented. But I, I do think she was more than that. I don't think it was about her. Mm-hmm. I think it was a bigger problem that she wanted to highlight. And yeah. she was brave enough whilst also being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an incredible combination. She was yeah. vulnerable before it was ever... Yeah. Yeah. acceptable to be oh, or yeah, popular absolutely. to be yes yeah and again i remember her interview on the late late show uh you know when she when she was dressed as the priest and and you know she was asked you know why she's doing this and she says well it's because of my great respect for god and religion <laughs> you know and, uh, and, I, and i think she meant that yeah she, 100% absolutely 100% and then when she embraced islam and, you know, she was talking about Islam and she would talk about the fact that, you know, she embraced Islam because she was concerned about the, the humanity and the, the wonder of the world. So in every aspect of her life, there was this intense search going on. She, yeah, she her criticism of the church, yeah, her criticism of, of humanity, her criticism of the world are criticisms that we can all, you know, agree with to a certain extent because we see the vulnerability, we see the sinfulness, and we see the crimes of the church and the world, uh, you know, in that. But Sinead kind of had this kind of brave spirit within her that she was quite willing to say it as it was. She was. And and, and, and I, I don't think we can underestimate, it was 31 years ago since she tore up. That was a massive that was, thing Oh, that was to huge do. at the time. And, and again, it was, on, it was a live performance. I think it was on the Letterman show. Uh, in yes. the US, yeah, Sorry where, where right, she yes. did this, if, I, if my memory serves me right. And again, this was just her total and absolute frustration. 
Uh, yes. I mean, that was expressed. Now, to be honest, and we all have to be honest in relation to this, a certain amount of it was kind of, um, you know, Sinead being a, a kind of a bit of a, a, a kind of an actor. Actress. I don't think that's true. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to have is. to disagree with really? you. Okay. Absolutely. Well, I, I would think it is. Yeah. I don't think she was capable of being that. Mm. I think she was a very, very real person mm. whose views... Mm. She put right out mm. there. Yes, yeah. But anyway, we invited you in, Father <laughs> Willie, to talk about you uh, because. What, what does it say? We agree to disagree. Well, yes, for, for now. For now. Um, but I, I do think yeah. we have spoken a lot, and rightly yeah. so, about mm. the problems with the church yes, and, absolutely. Yes, and the yes, scandals yes. and so on. But yes. I, I guess my desire to speak to you this morning was based mm-hmm. on wondering what is it like coming out of all of that, a very, very yes. difficult period for the Catholic mm. Church. Mm. What is it like to to be a priest in 2023? You're yeah. human, and I want to get get in touch sure. with that. And, and that question is very pertinent because this year is a very important year in Ireland. We're celebrating a year of vocations to the Rassam priesthood. And this is a year when we're kind of promoting priesthood. And coming out of, as you said, coming out of the, 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 the all that we've come through as church, you know, as a priest, yeah, yeah, the priests have gone through tough times. You know, those of us who are struggling and striving to do our best, and and in the midst of all the sins and the crimes around us of you know of our confreres and those in the church, that those of us who are trying to kind of maintain and hold on to what we believe, in order to give that to the people whom we're called to serve, and you know, being a priest in Ireland at the moment, you know, well, I can only talk from my own experience, being the parish priest of Clara, being involved in vocations, being involved in immigration, which is another one of my ministries, uh, that. That all of this kind of, for me, it makes priesthood worthwhile. Um, Can you? I'd love to know what a day in your life looks sure. like. But before before you talk us through that, and please do, is it hard to put the game face on and get out there? Because I have no doubt, but that you get mm-hmm. a lot of criticism, and mm. I might even call it abuse when you're out and about. Mm. Is that the case? Not in my case. Okay. I have good. never heard. Uh, nobody has ever abused me verbally in public, or nobody has ever. Uh, abuse me by email, by text or by social media. I, I, I can only talk from my own personal experience. I know priests who have and I know priests who have suffered greatly um, because of the abuse of others. And again, you know, I suppose look at it's like it's like Sinead. It's like, you know, all of us in many different ways when we're vulnerable and down and broken and when we're carrying a lot of personal baggage and a lot of institutional baggage and that we carry or, or when we're going through the pain and hurt of life you know, the people that sometimes we target or the people that maybe who are frontline for us to, to express our pain are the people whom we see or we perceive to see as doing good. Talk me through, you, you haven't had a personal experience of, no. of being targeted in that way, which I'm glad to hear. We don't Touch want to wood. hear anybody um, getting, getting a wood. hard time. <laughs> sure. But tell us a little bit about a day in your life. A day in my life. Well, you see, that the great thing about being a priest is this, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you get up in the morning and, you know, most priests, they go out, they celebrate Mass at whatever time Mass is at. And then, you know, in school time, we visit schools. Uh, you know, there's hospitals, visitations, there's home visitations of those, particularly people who are living on their own, who are vulnerable and can't come to church. So there's that whole visitation. Then there is, of course, now we're involved in the whole area of administration. Uh, you know, we have safeguarding to look after. We have GDPR to look after. And people sometimes don't see, don't see it in us. But this is what I always say. You know, for, for times when people are criticizing us and, and bringing us down, uh, you know, for me personally, people don't see me getting up at two o'clock in the morning and answering a call where there's been a sudden death, an illness or a suicide. Uh, they don't see it as I've had the experience of, you know, getting a call at three o'clock in the morning where you're going out to tell a family 
some bad news because something has happened. People don't see that aspect of our lives. They see us, you know, when we're at church. They see us when we're kind of in the media. They see us, other, but they don't see the the deeper sense of our calling and our vocation. And that often is in the quiet times when we have to be and are present and are very happy to be present with people in the suffering of their own lives. And in those moments, the priest would traditionally have been the first port yes, of call. Absolutely. Has that changed for the religion? Not at all. Oh, not at all. I mean, I mean, and you know, here I have to absolutely publicly, you know, uh, applaud our frontline workers, our first responders, all those who are involved in being called out to various situations in people's lives. Because when we, and this is my own experience, when I arrive on the scene, you know, the absolute compassion, care and kindness that I am called into from our first responders is absolutely heroic. And, you know, that's why I would like to publicly put that on record, because, you know, sometimes the first responders like ourselves, we arrive at the same time. The guards arrive, I arrive. Um, you know, the, the ambulance crew arrive, the, the fire people, the people arrive. And, you know, we're all on the scene of some, sometimes, sometimes things that are very, very difficult and very horrific. But the absolute compassion, kindness and care that's expressed by all of those who are part of that, with the priest. And the respect that they show for me. I was called not so long ago to a traffic accident in which a young man was killed. And when I arrived, the first responders were there. All the first responders stood back. They formed a circle around this poor man on the ground, and they joined in the prayers. And I said, people don't see that. You know, people just don't see that. Do you think that there's a future for priests in Ireland. To put it very simply, what do you see as being your role? How is it going to evolve over the next 10-15 years? Great question and I think it's going to change. I think it's definitely going to change. I think we need to move from the administrative kind of hold that's on us at the moment and we have to do the administration. I mean records have to be kept everything has to be done, everything has to be put online, everything has to be kept. But I think you're right, the the role is going to change for us because I think we're going to go back into you know what basically the ministry of priesthood is and that is you know providing sacraments for the people. But it's also being present to people. A friend of mine who works in New York told me that in St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, for confession on a Saturday morning, there is a queue the length of the whole avenue that people are returning. And, and I was joking to her, saying, you know, why is this? And he said, and he jokingly said to me, it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed that, that the queues are getting longer? <laughs> well, you know, people are, you know, you, you still get calls from people who want to kind of sit and chat because, again, no matter what has happened and all that has gone through and all that we've gone through as a nation and a church, you know, I think people still need people whom they can rely on as being confidential and secure. Okay. Listen, you're going to tell us sure. about a walk that's happening at Jenkinstown Park? Absolutely. I see a beautiful picture out here in, in the foyer as you come into the studio of Jenkinstown Park, the bluebells just on the wall right there. You can see it through the studio. Uh, on, in Jenkinstown Park next Sunday uh, afternoon at 2.30 we have our annual Camino Walk and this is really a, a reflective walk everybody's looking for quiet spaces, quiet times and kind of opportunities to reflect and, and this is an opportunity that we have every year this is our 10th year of the Camino we, we connect with the Camino of Santiago de Compostela in Spain uh, which I know many of your listeners have walked I, I walked myself in May for the 5th year and many of your listeners are preparing to walk so I know that they tell me so this is an opportunity for us to come together, gathering at the car park in the church in Jenkinstown at 2.30, and then just doing a reflective walk, stopping at different points, you know, to kind of reflect on our own personal journey through life. It sounds great. Father Willie, thank you so much thank for coming much, in Una. to us great. this morning. Thank you. KCL or Live, with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo, with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets, and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. 
Welcome back to KCLR Live. Now, Amazon Prime released a new series called 15 Love on the 21st of July and it stars Carlo actress Ella Lily Highland who joins me online. Good morning, Ella. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. This has been described as a breakout moment for you. Do you share that enthusiasm for this role? Yeah, well, like, it's amazing that it's it's been described that way. Um, like, it definitely was the most important experience of my career thus far. So um, I just am glad to see it's having an impact and it's resonating with people. Now, you play a professional tennis player in this series. So how was your tennis before you started preparing for this series? Oh, I didn't have any tennis at all. I had to learn from scratch. Um, I did three months training beforehand um, and just like try to train like every day if I could. And um, that was my camp, I guess. Now, I watched a trailer last night, so I hope I won't be doing any spoiling here. But in it, you were playing a match against your former coach. That's actually you playing. Yeah, well, yeah, they, they, we kind of learned it like a dance, like it was like choreographed. Um, and then they afterwards would like put the ball where the ball would go. But we learned it like step by step, if you get me. So it is me playing tennis. And then some of it would be like... Um, tiny like little clips of the girl who was my double um, and then they kind of edit it all together to make it look like a real match. Okay so she was because the serve was was pretty impressive I have to say not that I would be a great judge but I imagine three months wouldn't be long enough to get the sort of bias that you exhibited in that little clip anyway. Oh no not at all like like the serve was the hardest part for me but I think like once the trainers just kept saying to me like just pretend it's a dance like you don't have to actually hit the ball anywhere and I think then when that happens you, you just learn it as a dance and your body gets used to that kind of movement and that sway and stuff and um, but yeah if I was hitting serves I definitely wouldn't be getting them in. Okay and you star opposite Aidan Turner what was it like working with him? Oh great yeah Aidan's incredible he was such an, an amazing scene partner and um, yeah a great pal. Super. Was he good at tennis, by the way, before the the filming started? Yeah, he was really. He says he wasn't, but he was. He was really, really good. I was. His serve is amazing, actually. Okay. You do come from a sporty family, though. I believe that your grandfather was a record-breaking pole vaulting champion. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. My my um, dad's side of the family would be um, big into athletics and and pole vaulting and stuff like that. So you had, and have have you done a little bit of that? Yeah, I did it until I was like 15 or 16 and then I stopped. Um, But yeah, like it was kind of always, like all of my cousins would have been doing it as well. It was like how we were reared, basically, um, in that environment. And tell us, what's next for you, Ella? Um, A few different things. Uh, Actually, nothing right now. I'm not going on to work on anything right now but um, I'm doing a bit of writing and stuff like that so just keeping creative and keeping busy in that way Um, yeah Okay so a a woman of many talents it seems if anyone wants (laughs) to catch Ella you can do so on Amazon Prime in 15 Love Thank you so much for joining us this morning Thanks a million for having me KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie 
Lots still to come in the next hour, but first off at 11 o'clock, we're going to head over to Ashling for this hour's news. Thanks, Ashling. I don't think it feels like 19 degrees, do you? No, I don't think so. It definitely- um, yeah, we have the air con on in the newsroom, so I think that's making it a little bit colder. But <laughs> yeah. Even outside, I don't think it is. By the way, Ashling, you mentioned the Tullow Town plan there. And just a flag for some of our listeners, we're going to have Councillor William Patton in with us tomorrow morning to tell us a little bit more about that. So you'll be interested in that, Perfect. I have no doubt. Thanks a million. We'll chat Thank to you, you. later. Now, we're joined online by Marcella Brennan. Marcella, I'm going to start by offering my sympathies because sadly you lost your sister, Ashling, earlier this year to ovarian cancer. We did, um, Una. Um, Ashling was diagnosed in January and she passed away on the 12th of March, just after seven weeks of being diagnosed from stage four cancer. And she was age 55 on the day that she actually was told the, the news you know that's incredibly so it's still, sad it's still with it. yeah yeah and it didn't and give so many lives lives in her short life you know it didn't give Ashling or yourselves very much time to come to terms with that I'm sure it was incredibly yeah. difficult Marcella oh very difficult because our dad had just passed away in November as well so we were just coming to terms with that when Ashling got sick you know so we've had a lot on it, it sounds like it but even though you've had a lot on, you are doing a little bit to help others who maybe find themselves in that situation. Can you tell me a little bit about the fundraiser that's happening this weekend? Um, we were having the fundraiser. It, we were holding a table quiz in the Fighting Cox pub, which was the area that Ashley lived in. And it's on tomorrow night at 8.30. Um, we're going to run this every year in her memory. And all proceeds will go to the Friends of St. Luke's Cancer Hospital. That, that sounds really good. And how have you managed yeah. to, I suppose, think of others when you, it's been very difficult for yourself, I'm sure, Marcella. So how have you managed to put that aside and think of the bigger picture and others that you can help? That's a really admirable thing to be able to do yeah. so early in your grief. Well, in 2019, I went on the walk to Laos, which is between Thailand and um, Vietnam. And like I was the only one out of 20 that wasn't affected by cancer. And people used to say, well, why are you doing the walk and there's no one cancer? And I said, oh, sure, like, you know, thank God it hasn't hit my door. But we raised 6,000 euro per person. Many people go on the walk. But this year, Jill is coming with me, my sister, my younger sister. And we're going to walk in Ashley's memory and keep her memory alive because, you know, she was a big part of our lives. We were very, very close between us. We were like the three musketeers. You know, and um, we feel like, you know, it's helping other families as well. And like the Friends of St. Luke's are a fantastic service. They were founded in 1981, a cancer charity to support the treatment for cancer patients and their families. And the funding that we do goes towards Oakland Lodge. And that is a 51 um, bed ensuite unit for patients and families like to stay in free who are receiving radium from every part of Ireland. So if you're coming from Donegal and you're getting radium every day, you'll come on a Monday morning and you'll go home on a Friday and your family can come and stay with you also, you know. So it offers some comfort in a very difficult time. Yeah. Just to remind us again, Marcella, of the quiz this, it's tomorrow night. Yes, yeah, so tomorrow night at 8.30 Um and it's first come, first serves. We've very big interest in it. And our prizes for the table quiz were sponsored by Powers Court Distillery uh, for first and second prize, beautiful prizes, and regatta for third. And then we also, on our raffle, we've lots of uh, vouchers and hampers. And for first prize, 
we have a fully signed Leinster jersey also. Okay, well, that is a great cause and a lovely way, as you say, Marcella, to keep the memory of your sister Ashling alive. Thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Not at all. Thanks thanks very much, Una. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. 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 Marcella, delighted to be joined on the line now by Neve Murray. Neve is co-founder of Move to Be Project, which aims to dismantle barriers for teenage girls in sport. Good morning, Neve. Good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad. Now, you co-founded Move to Be with your sister, Orna. Yes, yeah. Um, Orna and I started Move to Be. Um, I suppose it was really from our own personal experience that um Orna was very much involved in elite um, athletic sport and then studied psychology and health psychology. Um, and what I suppose would have had issues over the years with um, her own menstrual cycle and managing it. And so she started working in sports science. And while she was doing that in parallel, I was working as a secondary school teacher um, and I was doing a lot of um, coaching. And I noticed that from first year to second year, there was this huge dip and drop out of girls participating in sport. So I kind of, we both kind of came together and put our heads together. And I was saying, look, how, what, what, what's happening? Is there any kind of information or, or research in this? Um, and actually, I suppose what came out was there was emerging research um, into why girls were dropping out of sports. And that was really the spark that we said, okay, well, let's try to um, break down this information into kind of something that we can that's practical for coaches and you know anyone that's involved in girls with sport to help the, support them and um, to be involved in sport. And so specifically from first to second year you noticed and made that correlation were you surprised Neve, that the Irish team the women's uh, football team elected to continue to wear white shorts in the World Cup? That was a surprise, um, and and from reading, um, I think between the lines and a few different articles, um, I'm not sure where that decision was made. I think, and I could be correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think one of the the players did come out and say, you know, they weren't really happy with the decision either. Um, and I suppose it's just as reflective of how this conversation needs to be happening at all levels of sport. Well, it, it certainly bucked the trend on what's happened elsewhere. So it, it mm-hmm. seemed to be a surprising move. But maybe there's more that goes on behind the scenes that, that we're not aware of. You spoke of your own experience in, in, in schools. I think we're talking a lot more, Niamh, thanks to projects like yours, about mm-hmm. female involvement in sport and how it seems to, to peter off quite early. Do you think that's changing at all? Um, there is at the moment there isn't really evidence that it it is changing yet. Um, you know there are some brilliant campaigns like the twenty twenty campaign and the visibility of of um, you know you know women succeeding in sport is brilliant, but it is really something that needs to be happening you know at all levels of sport and what we see is that you know there are there is more success and support for you know maybe elite sport athletes but that we can see that still on the ground that girls aren't um really engaging with you know the girls that aren't being physically active at all that by the age of 14 um there's a huge drop and that you know 80% of girls aren't meeting the recommended levels of physical activity and they're kind of the up to date stats that we have um, so as well as, you know, the whole seeing it to believe it, it's actually we need to 
you know, for to believe that you can be a professional sports person is one thing, but actually to believe that there's a space for you and your friends in sport is something that we particularly try to focus on. And actually a lot of that is, you know, seeing your mom going out and, you know, there's brilliant initiatives like Mothers and Others and seeing them on the pitch playing sport or lacing up their runners to go for a run or seeing your sister being physically active. Like on a basic level, we really need to get though that right so that we can support whether or not they're, you know, amazing at the sport. That's not really the point. The point is to really just get girls to find something that they enjoy doing um, to get all the health benefits from being physically active. I think you raise a really interesting point there about seeing family members, siblings, parents getting involved in sport and how maybe it becomes more natural for you to do that. But I suppose one thing that bothers me is the idea that it's the taking part that's count, that counts and all of that. I feel that sport, even at the very lower levels, is taken quite seriously. And I wonder, is that intimidating or is it off-putting for, for, for anybody, including girls? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are so many different barriers to sport that girls will encounter. Um, Some of them might be social. Some of them might be, you know, physical, like just practical facilities levels, having your menstrual cycle starting. Um, And then other other things like peer pressure or just pressure on it being a competitive sport. Um, And unfortunately, it does seem that, you know, some teams do put the emphasis on you know the the winning part and the competition part and as um i suppose it is interesting the correlation as sport gets more serious as such that girls start dropping out more when when that happens as well but for some girls they enjoy it um and it is a matter of going back to the basics of having the conversation you know with a, a team and saying what are your goals for this year, for this season? Is it winning? Is it getting fitter? Is it having a laugh? And that's something we try to do through a workshop. So we do workshops with girls themselves, with their clubs. But we also do workshops with coaches because coaches, you know, they're volunteers. They're doing their best. Um, and they're probably just bringing with them, you know, a lot of them are were people who probably enjoyed the competitive side of the sport as well. So they just assume that's what everyone wants. And it's actually bringing it back to saying, well, maybe it's a goal setting session you do with the girls at the beginning of the season to see what do they want from it um, and, and just giving them that option as well. It's it's a tricky balance though, isn't it? And I, and I do feel that's something that maybe is going to become more of a talking point over the months and years to come. I don't want you to speak on behalf of Orna, but you might just mention a few of the things that she encountered in terms of challenges along the way in her sporting career, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose Orna, her circumstances were a little bit different. Um, and it was interesting because I was probably to speak of my own experience I was very much involved in sport for the joy of being involved in sport and you know hanging out with my friends and being physically active and all that all everything that kind of came with it Orna actually um was very successful in her sport and it got more and more serious with her training um, and she took her sport very seriously and then 
that led and she had a lot of success in it so then she was going to competitions and she was training very hard and then what she found so we both would have come across you know situations where facilities weren't appropriate you know the kit that you were given weren't appropriate but then I suppose as her training went on then it led to problems like she lost um, her period and at the time that would have been considered really a sign that yeah you were training hard and there wasn't any really discussion of why that might be a bad thing for your body but actually as a knock-on result of that um, you know she ended up getting a stress fracture which is you know a knock-on effect of not having your period is that you don't have the protective estrogen rising in your body to help your bones and things like that so it really knocked her for seven and actually kind of put an end to her um, elite sporting career because she was training cross-country for Ireland um, and you know racing at, at that elite level but it, it really put an end to it and then she had to go back and say well what is sport to me if I'm not competing and and not training really seriously and then so like at now she actually does loads of different sports and um, she's currently in New Zealand and she's snowboarding and she does mountain biking and swimming and she's rekindled that kind of fun element of what sport is and um, so it's been really a full cycle for her of you know um, a journey through sport and the different ways you can engage with it. So she's really, I suppose, come more towards your way of looking at sports. Yeah, yeah. And look, her hand was forced a little bit as well, I think, maybe if she hadn't gotten, you know, injured. She did enjoy the, the serious competitive element of it as well. But she had to really re-examine her relationship with sport and say, you know, maybe there were parts of it that weren't really healthy for her either. Um, with the level that she was training um, at. So, yeah, so she's come real full circle and has come back to, you know, the joy of moving your body and and being physically active. Well, I, I think your project is amazing. I think the talk, the talking that we're doing around this can only be good and continued good work to you, Niamh. Thank you so much for joining us on air this morning. Th- thanks a million. Bye now. KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Welcome back to KCLR Live. Somebody texting in. No, our text's not read out anymore in this programme. They are. I've been slow about that. I do apologise, but I'm going to get to them in just a moment. Now, on this week's episode of Ours to Protect, show producer Ethna Quirk spoke to Chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council, Mary Donnelly, about where we are in terms of meeting our climate, tar- tar- our climate targets. Here it is. Hours to Protect, brought to you by KCLOR, the IBI, and funded by Commission Amman with a television license fee. Check out hours to protect.ie for more information. This week on Hours to Protect, I'm joined by Mary Donnelly, who is the chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council. Mary, firstly, just to touch on the work of the Climate Change Advisory Council, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do there? Yes, indeed. So, the Climate Change Advisory Council is an independent body that advises the government on actions for climate change. We base our recommendations and advice to government on scientific analysis. So we are not a a lobby group. We are not, you know, an advocacy group and whatever. We we base any recommendations that we make, we do it on the basis of science uh, and we follow the scientific uh, guidance in terms of the guidance that we give to, uh, to the government. In in practical terms, what does it mean? Uh, It means that 
on, a, on an annual basis, we do what's called the annual review, and that's the report that came out uh, just recently now, a few days ago. And in it, we review where Ireland stands in terms of its own legislative target for 2050. Uh, as you know, we have a target for 2050. Uh, we have an interim target for 2030, which is a 51% reduction of emissions. And we also then have given ourselves shorter-term targets in the form of five-year carbon budgets. So we review the progress uh, of Ireland in terms of achieving the legislative requirements, where we're at and what measures can be taken to perhaps perform a little bit more effectively in terms of reducing our emissions. You published your annual report on Tuesday. Where are we? I I think we have to start with acknowledging that in 2022 our emissions did go down by 1.9%, which was at least a positive reduction, although it's very tiny, quite honestly. Uh, And unfortunately, on current projections, instead of achieving a 51% reduction by 2030, we're heading to about a 30% reduction. So, you know, over halfway, which is, you know, positive and people are making a real effort, but we will have to increase the effort, we'll have to increase the policy development, we'll have to speed up the policy implementation, and we'll have to speed up all of the actions around reducing our emissions. Mary, do you see a hesitancy there from the government? I know we have maybe a lot done, a lot more to do, or some done and a lot more to do to meet those targets. But is there a commitment, is there a push here by government to meet these targets? Uh, Well, of course, it's in legislation. So, of course, the government is governed by the legislation just as the rest of us are. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, what they tend to say in terms of in this space is the low hanging fruit has been taken up and built into policy. And we are now slowly moving into somewhat more challenging policy requirements where, for example, we will need additional funding, that's clear, where we will need additional investment, and the rollout of that investment will have to happen much faster than has been happening up to now, and of course planning is is a key element of that. But it also means that we have to look at uh, what are the new possibilities, new innovations, and adopting those and, you know, speeding up the rate of dissemination of new innovations. And I, I think we also have to look at the reality of disincentives for the emission of fossil fuels, particularly in our transport, heating and electricity sectors. On an individual basis, is this too big for individual householders to make a big impact? We're all going to be living on this planet, I hope, uh, and we all want it to be sustainable and comfortable to live in. So, yes, we need leadership from the government and we need the policies, we need the implementation of those policies and we need funding and support to those policies. But in the end of the day, the policies in many respects are implemented at local level. So the actors there are certainly our local county councils, for example, because a lot of the areas would be in their uh, field of competence. But it's also ourselves to take up the opportunities. And if I can give one or two illustrations of that, we do urge the government to further invest in public transport and to make it efficient and to make it accessible to people and to make it financially viable for people to take it. We also urge them to, you know, support uh, alternative possibilities of it might be cycling or walking and to ensure that, you know, cycle paths are safe, particularly around schools, uh, if kids are cycling to school. But then the next stage really falls to us. Are we going to avail of these alternative mechanisms of transport? 
And for some, it will be more straightforward, and for others, it will be challenging. But I suppose at an individual level, we could say to ourselves, you know, in a week, is there one day that I could take public transport or walk or cycle that day for that journey rather than taking my car? And, you know, it all adds up. If we all did one a week right now, and maybe next year we might get to two a week, and then it starts to snowball and we start to get used to the alternative forms of transport and not always rely on just jumping into the car to go down to the shops to get a pint of milk. Any take-home message for listeners this morning or for government indeed? Well, for government, we need action. We need action now and we need more deeply impactful action than we have had up until now. Part of that, though, has to be bringing everybody in the country with us, not just mentally, but also ensuring that those who can afford it, do it, but those who maybe have struggling with financial problems or whatever, that they are supported but not left behind in this transition. We have to ensure it's a fair transition, it's one where we can all participate in it and that nobody gets left behind. Mary Donnelly, Chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council, thank you so much for your time this morning. Ours to Protect is funded by Commission Le Mans with a television licence fee and is a partnership between KCLR and the Independent Broadcasters of Ireland. Check out Ours to Protect Protect.ie for more information. Remember, you can listen back on both our website and you'll find as well all our Ours to Protect series on ourstoprotect.ie and also weekly tip sheets, uh, weekly tip sheets, excuse me, and lots more as well. So loads to check out there. We have had um, a nice little bit of reaction to the pharmacist, to Sinead's passing and to Father Willie. One texter says, surely Father Willie can see that the church is dying on its feet. The average age of a priest is 75. Young people seem to want to get on in life without religion. He certainly didn't seem to agree with that. Also, the higher ups in Rome refuse to get with the times at their own peril. Regarding the pharmacies, wonderful idea. The pharmacists have time to talk to patients unlike doctors at surgeries. I don't know if they have as much time as they'd like to, but perhaps that will change in time to come. Someone is asking, can pharmacists now prescribe antibiotics for common infections? We'll wait to see, I guess, is the answer to that one. Someone else on Sinead. Sinead exposed so many scandals that were covered up for years. Red easy, Sinead. And somebody giving us great advice for a lovely day out. My way to relax is to drive to Gregnamana, walk or cycle to St Mullins and enjoy the beautiful cafe with the wonderful staff. That sounds absolutely dreamy and we're, I'm hoping to get around to do exactly that very soon. Um, also had quite a long text in from Mark about, about Sinead um, who concludes by saying that she was a wonderful and talented performer and says that if you're famous, your private life becomes public. And if you put in the cruel mix of mental health and being famous, it didn't help things for her. So he's suggesting that we think of anybody we know who is suffering from mental health in a positive way and reach out to them. It is the day for playing Sinead's music and we're going to take this beautiful piece from her, Three Babies. KCLR Live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlow with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie Carlow, Kilkenny, KCLR. 
Welcome back to KCLR Live 083 306 for your texts like this one. I'm so fed up listening to climate change. Ireland is not responsible for all this. Why are we being blamed for it? We are being taxed to the hilt in the belief it's going to change everything. We produce so little. What about China, USA and all the big industrialised countries? Well, I'm not sure we can say that we're responsible for none of it. But anyway, moving on to talk about food, which is one of my favourite favorite topics. We're joined in studio by Anne Neary, as we always are on a Thursday. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and is, uh, I, just that, just what you've actually spoken about. I've done a lot of travelling in my life, and when I see places like Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur and all that, and to see you know, the fires that are lit there and the smoke that's coming out and the factories that are so big, and you think... Holy God, Ireland will fit in in one hand of what, what it was. But I can understand we have to do our bit too to make the whole world we as clean as we want to have it. But like, we're definitely not the worst. We, we, we're far from the worst, but I don't think anyone is, is trying to claim that we are. But I think the idea that every single one of us has a social responsibility has to be highlighted because it, it can make a difference and it will make a difference. Yes, it is. And everybody, if everybody does a little bit... That's it. We'll come out the other the other end, hopefully. And I know, uh, you know, people say about taxes and one thing and other, but that's life. You just move on. What happened 50 years ago now is not happening today. So, yeah, you move with it. We move with it. The great yeah. certainties in life and taxation is definitely one of them. <laughs> so, Anne, what delight do you have for us this morning? OK, so I'm going to do a Mediterranean and vegetable and pesto tart. At the moment, if anybody has grown basil themselves, the basil is absolutely fabulous. My own basil is really great. So uh, if you want to make a bit of pesto, uh, it's it, fine. If you if you don't want to make a bit of pesto, you can go into the supermarket and pick up a jar of pesto and you can use it. But pesto in itself, it's just quickly, the recipe is not down there, but just quickly, if anybody has a pen, it's just five fluid ounces of olive oil, two anchovy fillets, uh, about, I'd say, uh, two tablespoons of pine nuts, and some parmesan cheese. Basically, that's it. You just blitz it all together. Not everybody is a fan of the anchovy. I love it, but it wouldn't be everyone's idea of a nice addition. Is it always in pesto? Well, no. That, no, it's not always in pesto. If you look at the jars also, on some of them, it, it is not in it. However, if you do include it, you won't taste it, but it does soup up the flavour. I mean, it just is absolutely fabulous once you put in that... And I know, I mean, I've been given class for 38 years and when I take out the answer, they say, oh, those creepy looking, thin looking yolks. And then I say, well, look, let's taste it. Just let's taste it. And then they say, God, you never even know what was in, but it d- definitely does add to the flavour. If you don't feel like putting it in, Leave it out. Yeah, that's it. Quite salty as well, aren't they? Yes, they're quite salty. But you see, you must remember parmesan cheese is salty too. So you don't need any salt or pepper in this particular recipe because that's what you sort of do. You know, that's what you have. And it's... Some people say that they, that they make it with uh, walnuts, but pine nuts are my favourite to sort of make them. And I also like to toast them before I actually do it as well. You don't have to put on the cooker. You can put them on a pan, just on a dry pan, just shake them up and down difficult to do that though because I've tried that many times and I burn, burn, burn. It's a real flash in the pan that's tricky to get right. It is a flash in the pan. Actually people that have induction hobs have nearly a better control on it because their their pan will be quite quite hot when they put it, once you put the pan down on the induction hob, the heat is there straight away. So you literally just put them on, shake them and nearly take them off. Whereas on the ordinary say gas or electricity of it takes a while to sort of heat it up and there are some uh, pieces of browning going on while they are heating up. 
people don't think that they think oh it takes another minute I want it to go so, but other than that you have what I often do is when I have the cooker going or the oven going I put in a tray and then I put them into a screw top jar leave them there and then use them as I want to and how long will they stay fresh in the screw top oh, jar they'd say ages ages yeah as, as long as Months? you seal it yeah Okay, Months, great. Yeah. Super. But I would say to you a month, but I mean, they will say months. Right. And that recipe that you gave, which sounds delightful, and I'd be all over the anchovies, let me say, how long would that stay fresh, that pesto that well, you just Well, the described? pesto, yeah, the pesto in itself, if you keep it in the fridge, okay, now it will solidify when you put it into the fridge because you have the olive oil in it. So the, so take it out of the fridge and give the stir around. I would I would like to leave it maybe for about a fortnight or so. You remember you have fresh basil inside and a clove of garlic, sorry, as well, you can put into it. You have fresh basil into it and fresh basil doesn't last for ages. So I would say, now, there's nothing, the colour may not be right, but there would be nothing wrong with, I mean, you could sort of use it. So that's why I'm giving you a small amount to use. And then you can use it on your pork chop or your lamb chop or you have a lovely bit of cold chicken and you just want something. Pesto you can use on anything. Put it on a cracker, have it with a glass of wine in the evening time. It's delicious. Anything, anything you want. I think basil does blacken though, doesn't it? You referred to that, that it can discolour slightly. Yes. For those of us that don't grow our own basil, mm. you go to the supermarket, mm. you get your pot. Mm. What is the secret to keeping that alive as long as possible? Yeah. Would you believe, uh, I have some grown in my polytunnel, but I bought a, a, a packet of, or a, I would say a pot of it one day. I thought, because I was running down and sort of on my own. And that was a month ago. And it is still, I've just had it out on the barbecue area. I just have, I put a bit of water in every so often and it is absolutely flourishing. So up on your kitchen window, I would say, would be one of the best places because the thing about it is that there is a fly that would actually, eat. there is a fly. And they say if you grow marigolds, you know the marigold flowers, that that stops the fly from eating it. But this year, you will find that flies are not as prominent as they used to be. I don't know what it is like again, but we're talking about the whole spray issue and all that. So I don't know, but I definitely have that. I would definitely have it for a month, six weeks. Okay, I haven't noticed that that there are fewer flies flying around. There are, there are fewer. We live out in the country now, and in one particular thing, there's a tree, and that we used to look out, and we we customers know that we shift from Ryland House up to the we built a lodge on the farm there for ourselves. But when you would look out in the evening time around five o'clock or six o'clock on summer's evening, there would be a nest of them that size. You never see them there now. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And, and a little disturbing probably for us. Yes, yes. I mean, you, yeah, you don't fly. Having said all that, the wasps are mad at the moment. They are told me that my husband got stung so bad. He really? ended up going to the doctor. We had to get in a man to fumigate out the, the house that they were in. And actually, a friend of mine was telling me that her dad, in a room that he doesn't use very often, yeah. he went in and found... A pretty sizable nest of yeah. wasps, yeah. which is a very frightening for somebody to come in unarmed, unaware of what they're oh, facing. Oh, I'm telling it? you, they came for him, bald headed, you could say nearly. They bit him literally all over. They, they, he couldn't get out for half fast enough because there's a shed down there that we have stuff in. He was just going to go in. He said, you couldn't believe it. And where they actually were was in an old carpet when we got in the man to fumigate him yesterday. They were in an old carpet and he just bought it out and he fumigated the whole thing up but they're mad so mind yourselves from the wasps so they, they like the cosy carpet that's <laughs> it and I, I found quite a few out in my garage I'll have to or in my shed rather and I do have old strips of carpet out there I must investigate and see if there's that's anything that's interesting dodgy. isn't it Jess it and actually I found one we have a new shed because we only built this lodge uh, 12 months ago and there's a shed out there and there was a small one about the size of an orange 
I found the other day in the shed as well. So they're mad. They're all over the place. But they're dreadful because you have this stinging feeling for days out of afterwards. It, it's, ha- it, it's scary, isn't it? Because yeah. if, if they come at you, or even just one little little uh, sting, it's, it's yes. very unpleasant. Yes. Anyway, we've back done our pesto. The, so back to our quiche. Yeah, where we started off as usual and everybody says she does everything on a cook. Well, we, love, we love to chat to you. <laughs> actually, I'm, I'm just looking at the title. It's a tart. What is the difference between... This is a Mediterranean vegetable and pesto tart. And that's different to a quiche how? No, it's the same. It's just that quiches, the original quiches were just egg and bacon and cream and salt and pepper, okay, or milk, basically. Whereas it, this one here, we put loads of other bits and pieces into it. So like sun tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, all, all that type of thing, garlic, the pesto. So you can call it a quiche if you want to. Or you can smarten it up and you can call it, call it whatever. I just wondered, was there a difference? But there isn't. No, there's, paste, there's a, still a pastry base. Now, can I just talk about the pastry base? First of all, I've actually said there, you can go in and you can buy the uh, a pastry case, uh, baked blind, uh, if you want to. You can buy the pastry first and bake it blind if you want to. But Or else you can make your own pastry by having your margarine and your flour rubbings in adding some water to it and there you go and you'd need about 125 grams of margarine and 225 grams of flour however when you're making a quiche uh, you have if you don't have a naga or a rayburn or a stanley or whatever it is you will have to bake the case blind because if not you're going to have like Mary used to say on uh, Mary Berry you'd have the soggy bottoms so you don't want the soggy bottoms you want a lovely crisp bottom don't you on your tart so there we go on that. So basically, if you have an aga or a Rayburn or a Stanley, whatever it is, you can make up your quiche, you can put in your pastry in the bottom, add everything else that you're going to it and bung it on the floor of the aga or the Stanley or the Rayburn or whatever one you have and leave it there for half an hour and then shift it up to the next shelf. If you have like a gas cooker or electric cooker or whatever you have in that, you have to bake the case blind because there's not enough heat from the bottom coming up to bake the base and then you're going to have the soggy bottom. Okay. Okay, so basically bacon blind means that you put your pastry in, you prick it all over, you get some grease for paper, squish it up really small and then put it in around it. Make sure you go right in into the corners because this is what you want. You don't want a quiche that it's halfway out that way. You want everything into the corners of it. And then what you're going to do with, with it then, you're going to put in some bacon beans, even bacon beans, put in uh, peas, you know, marifat peas or rice. So you put those in. So you've got your greaser paper, pastry, give yep. it a little prick, prick over, with yeah. all over. All actually, over. that's the thing I don't do, which probably is... Yes, is it does, yeah. And that helps to, to actually cook it faster. Cook it. And you put it in then <coughs> for about 15 minutes. You take off the bacon beans and uh, I usually take it out of the oven and I brush it with an egg white to kind of seal it. And then I put it back in the oven for two or three minutes and that's it. Now... Fortunately, I own a cooker that sort of that with has a range bottom. But if I'm given a class, and I still have to do it because it is not everybody has a range cooker. So I mean, you have to cook it. And as I said, you can make your own pastry, or there's good short cost pastry in the supermarket. Like, make life as easy as you possibly can for yourself. Twenty years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I said, oh, you must make it from base and one thing to another. Look at now, everything is sort of everybody's working, everybody's in a hurry, and everybody sort of wants something. But you could have this base cooked one or two of them and you can stick them in your freezer and then you can pull them out the day that you want to fill them up okay. and that's really the, and for working mums they find that really handy the other thing that's really handy as well your cupcake tins and then the cupcake tins you can use them as individual quiches all along and you don't have to to, to bake those from 
from blind. You just put in the pastry, put in the filling and bake them in the oven in the cupcake size. So they're all individual ones. But do they not go soggy then? How, no, they won't because it's only a small tin that you use and you're only a small tin and it's, you know, it's quite hot up the side of it so you can do it. So will I give you the Yes, please go for it. Okay, so the ingredients then you need about an onion and about 100 ml of olive oil, clove of garlic, uh, two large teaspoons of pesto that we were sort of using it uh, and then you need a dessert spoon of parsley and sage. Oh, here we have parsley and chive don't be running down to buy sage only uh, some sliced ham if you have it there if you haven't grill up a few rashes and put it sort of into it send me your sun-dried tomatoes or a half pound of cherry tomatoes whichever you have available the pastry case four eggs I I like to use milk and cream mixed if you're weight watching you use low fat milk if it's a thing you're not weight watching you use ordinary milk and then basically what you're going to do is you're going to fry off the onions basically for about 10 minutes until they're opaque and then you're going to add the garlic cook that another bit uh, a bit of sugar in there I don't know whether I put it in or not but add a little bit of sugar to it salt and pepper and then add the semi-dried tomatoes or the cherry tomatoes and then spread the pesto over the pastry scatter with the ham sprinkle with the sprigs of marjoram oregano or whatever herb that you, you want to put into it and then you beat up the eggs and the cream together and then you just pour it into it now you can put in some and um, the grated cheese as well you're going to put that on in the end what I like to do is when I have it wet in before I grate on my cheese you you, you know little rockets you know rocket uh, the little salad yes. it's peppery I put in a bunch of them on top and then I put the cheese on top of that and I bake it now I know the yeah, rocket you bake the the, the rocket. rocket yeah in it yeah and it's gorgeous it gives lovely peppery flavour and it says green enough under the under the when you put in the cheese you know on top of it it says green enough sort of underneath that yeah and it sounds good. delicious it is it's an absolutely fabulous dish and like the thing is that look at we still have another three weeks we're supposed to do get a fortnight of amazing weather so if we do you might have it for your picnics or something like we that we can't wait that sounds so and bung them in the freezer if we, we make a few extra course, and then a, a rainy day we've got our dinner salt yes um, actually, while I think that I've got a pair of tickets to give away for Ladies' Day in Goran Park on Saturday, are you going racing this weekend, Anne? I normally would, but I can't because I have to go to a party. But I'm going racing in Galway next week. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole week. You're sparing your money for that one. Uh, yes. Anyone interested in our tickets, if you text us Ladies' Day to 083 306 it's a yeah. fabulous prize. Yeah, Great, on. our own DJ D. Hughes is playing. There's oh, sure, um, After yeah. Dark and Always Money to Be Won and Lost Races. <laughs> Depending on how it runs. Did you ever see a bookie on a bike? I did not. No, there you go. <laughs> They're never smiling though and I can't work out why. <laughs> and thank you for your delicious recipe. Look forward no. to trying that out yes, and we look forward to chatting to you next week. You will do. Take care. Bye-bye. KCL or Live with thanks to Green Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. Ladies Day on 0833069696 with your name and details if you fancy those tickets to Goran Park Ladies Day this weekend. I said we'd be speaking with Anne. We won't actually because she's going racing, but we will be bringing you something foodie um, instead. Now, I'm joined by Edwina Grace, who's at the launch of the new Carlo uh, Town Bus Service. Hi, Edwina. Hi, Una, and yeah, welcome to On Malartan or the Exchange. 
here in Carlo, the uh, building that was revamped, I suppose, and the heart of Potato Market and the heart of Carlo Town uh, to become a function-based uh, centre. And today it's uh, hosting the launch of the Carlo Town bus. Now, I have to point out, apparently there are people waiting at some of the bus stops across Carlo Town for the bus. But just to remind people, it doesn't actually start or go into service until Sunday. So uh, you'll be waiting a while if you're waiting for a bus to turn up. But uh, it is being launched by the Minister, Eamon Ryan. He's currently on a bus having photos taken in the uh, Carlow Town Coach Park, which, of course, opened um, or the revamped version opened uh, in February. So this is the next stage now, Una, the um, unveiling of the bus. There was a trial run, of course, there a few weeks ago. And even as we stand here at the exchange, I'm looking across at one of the buses and uh, I'm told 17 drivers will be employed to provide the service. Two routes, of course. Um, we have the CW1, which runs from MSD along the Dublin Road to Tyndall College and the Kilkenny Road. And then CW2 runs from the Wexford Road Business Park to the ba- Barrow Valley Retail Park, Greg Cullen. And the aim is to have the service operating from Sunday, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, from just before 6am in the morning until midnight. So, uh Quite a lot of excitement here today, already chatting to, there's a crowd of about 50 gathering here at the exchange, representatives of Bussaren, the NTA, the County Council, uh, quite a bit of media too, and also some people who are just really, really interested in the service. I was chatting to one man who uses his bicycle a lot, but he's delighted because now he can ditch the bike on the rainy days and hop on the bus. Others telling me it's going to be a great asset for them if they want to do a bit of shopping and maybe they don't want to get a taxi, they don't want to have to take a car, um, but they, they feel maybe the shopping bags might be too heavy to lug across the town. Um, others telling me too that great to be able to hop on a bus and get it to the other side of the town to maybe a friend's house and especially given that the buses will run so late in the evening too. So a lot of excitement here this morning. It's great and it has been long awaited and delayed so I'm sure the anticipation is wonderful. Did you, so you've seen um, the Minister Eamon Ryan but didn't get a chance to speak to him yet I'm assuming? No, he's coming straight to, to me next I'm told. Actually the bus, there is a bus pulling up now and my guess he's going to be on it. Um, he's been doing photo shoot over at the, the coach park itself um, and that's been underway but I'm told before he gives a speech he's going to have a quick chat chat to me here at the um, the, the the exchange sorry I'm a bit thrown because the no bus problem. is literally coming straight for me here no problem it's out, out of service it tells me but it does indeed have a group of people on it um, I can see Councillor Finton feeling I can see a lot of the uh, town councillors on it um, so my guess is that yeah the Minister Eamon Ryan is, is somewhere in the middle um, on, on that bus so he just got a, a little Right through Carlow Town there over here to the, the exchange. Well, listen, we don't want to endanger you and we don't want you to miss your scoop with Minister Ryan. But Edwina, thank you so much for bringing us um, that news this morning. It's great news. We look forward to hearing more about it as it rolls out. But just again, to remind people, I guess it's important that it's not actually in service until yeah. Sunday. <laughs> That's right. Like I say, there, there, there are people waiting at various bus stops. I'm told uh, across the town, they, they just thought that the service itself was getting underway. But uh, it's very much not starting until Sunday. Just the official unveil is happening at the moment. Okay, super. Well, Edwina, enjoy it. Thanks, as always, for bringing us live updates from wherever the action happens to be. (laughs) Thanks, Una. We'll chat to you later. That's about all we have for you today. It's been a pleasure to have your company. I want to say a huge thanks to Tara and to Ethna for all their work on today's show. Don't forget that you can listen back to anything online if you've missed it. And our phone lines remain open 056 779 6241. I'm not sure. Do we have a winner of our Ladies' Day tickets? 
we don't yet, but we'll announce it. We'll announce it later. You can keep your guesses coming in on 083 306 9696. Not your guesses, but your name rather, and just texting in Ladies' Day, and we will announce the winner shortly. You can check anything else out on KCLR Live at KCLR 96 FM. We'll chat to you tomorrow. KCLR Live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie.